Um, good morning. For me, right about now, I think it's about 4 or 5 a.m. back in the States. <laughs> so if I fall asleep on my own talk, please forgive me. Um, but we're going to... Um, we're going to do our first talk today is called The Cry of the Covetous, Life Isn't Fair. If you are a note taker, um, in the back of your guide, there's a place to take notes. You don't have to take notes, but I'm going to actually give you the outline um, because I think that's helpful. I like to tell people it's helpful to have so you know where we're going, but it's also helpful because then you know when I will finally be done speaking. Sometimes that's always good to know if you're, if you're feeling like, I need to get out of here. Um, and so what we're going to talk about today in this first talk, we're going to have three points. And so, um, and by the way, if you don't get all of this, these are going to be online Monday. These are going to be online Monday. So if you're feeling like I'm taking notes and I missed something, it will be online for everybody Monday. So the first thing we're going to ask three questions today, and we're going to say, what exactly is coveting? So that's going to be point one. And then the second question we're going to ask is, how do I know if I'm coveting? And then the third thing we're going to ask is, what is at the heart of my coveting? So those are the three things we're going to cover. What exactly is coveting? How do I know if I'm coveting? And what is at the heart of my coveting? Um, this sin pattern of coveting, I think sometimes is one of the most non-talked about of the Ten Commandments. Um, we think of it as kind of the add-on at the end. Like maybe there were nine big ones, and then at the end, God wanted to make it nice and even with the ten, and so we just tacked this one on there. And sometimes it seems like it's really not a big deal. It's the smallest of the commandments, so we need to pay attention to the big ones like don't murder and don't commit adultery. Those are the ones that you know, are really important. But what I want to say is this 10th commandment, as I have studied it and looked at it, I think it's one of the most important commandments that we as women can study and think about. I like to say it's a little bit like when you get a splinter or a sliver in your finger and, you know, you could just leave it there. It doesn't really hurt that bad. And, in fact, it hurts quite a bit to go digging it out. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's just really not pleasant. And you're thinking, maybe I should just leave it because it's not worth this pain to go digging around. But we know the reality. If we leave something foreign in our bodies, it can get infected. And we know if it gets infected, it can hurt the whole finger. Not only the whole finger, but the whole body it can become infected by a little thing that really didn't seem like that big of a deal. Well, I'd like to say that coveting is a little bit like that sliver. We can think it's not a big deal. We can think it'll just go away. But if it's left to sit in our body, it's going to infect us. And it's actually going to infect other people. Because whatever is affecting me, I'm, I'm not just a single Christian. I'm part of all of you. And so our whole body can be infected by the sin. And so we're going to dig deep into this. In the next two talks, we're going to really look at what it's like and how, how we can um, observe the characteristics it takes, the pattern it takes. And the reason we're going to do that, you may be feeling like we are digging around in some places I don't want to dig this morning. But the reason we're going to do that is because we actually need to know where the battle is. So often we think the battle is just getting our circumstances sorted. And if I could just get my life sorted out, 
then I'd be fine. The reality is we have a heart problem more than we have a circumstance problem. And that's what we want to talk about. So rather than trying to put all of our efforts to making the perfect life, which is impossible and will never satisfy us, how do we put our efforts to walking with Christ in such a way that he changes our hearts and suits us to our circumstances and gives us contentment in them? So that's the goal. So we're going to look deep at this. We're going to go into some of those places, but I promise we will get to the good news of what Christ has done for us. So it may be some of this heart work today may be somewhat painful, but the good news of the gospel, I believe, shines even greater when we see the depths of our need for Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing. So let's jump in. What exactly is coveting? Um, That's the first thing we're going to talk about. The first thing I want to say is what it's not. Coveting is not having or possessing nice things. You can't look at the room and say, well, she's got the biggest house and the biggest car, so she must be the biggest coveter. That's not what it is. Nor is it not having desires. The goal is not to just say, well, to make sure I'm not a coveter, I'll just stop having desires altogether. We live in a world that has fallen. It's not right. So it's quite natural that we would have longings for things because we don't have everything here. Um, If you've ever seen the Broadway play Wicked, you'll know it's the story. It's a retelling of the story of the Wizard of Oz. Um, And it tells about Glinda the Good Witch. She becomes Glinda. Glinda, It's Galinda in the play. She becomes Glinda the Good Witch. And Elphaba, who becomes the Wicked Witch of the West. And as the story goes, they were college roommates. And um, they were friends. But they fall in love with the same man. And they have two different ways of looking at desire. Um, Glinda, she, they fall in love with the same man. Glinda coerces him into an engagement. And she sings this to the crowd to convince herself. So I couldn't be happier because happy is what happens when all your dreams come true. Well, isn't it? Happy is what happens when all your dreams come true. She clings to the belief that getting what she wants will ultimately bring her happiness. Alphaba, on the other hand, thinks herself completely unworthy of love. She has this bright green skin, and she warns herself, don't wish, don't start. Wishing only wounds the heart. I wasn't born for the rose and the pearl. There's a girl I know. He loves her so. I'm not that girl. Both of these women fall into two pitfalls when it comes to desire. One, Glenda believes that happy is what happens when all my dreams come true. And then Elphaba, on the other side, tries to squelch desire altogether and just says, I won't have any desires because I'm not that girl. So what we want to do is consider how do I rightly hold desire? Can I have good desires? And the answer is yes. Um, There are two words that are used in the Bible for desire. And the Hebrew word for desire is kamad. It's spelled C-H-A-M-A-D, kamad. And it's used to describe both good desires and bad desires. For instance, in Psalm 19, it's used to describe God's law, saying they're more more desirable than gold. So there are good things we can desire. We can rightly desire God's word. The Greek word for desire is epithemeo, epithemeo. And I won't spell that. 
That's long. <laughs> and in a positive sense, Jesus used this word um, when he was talking about the Passover. He told his disciples, I've earnestly desired to eat this feast with you. Um, so there, are, both of these words have right uses. We can rightly say, you know, I've really desired for my family to all be together so we can share a meal together. It's fine to have desires. When these words are translated into covet, they are always talking about a negative, ungoverned, idolatrous, and selfish desire to possess. You will not see in Scripture the term covet used positively. While we're told that God is a jealous God, we're never told that he's a covetous God. Coveting is always negative as it's used in Scripture. It's always wanting something in a wrong way. And so here's the definition I'm going to give you for coveting. We can define coveting as an inordinate or culpable desire to possess, often that which belongs to another. I'll repeat that. Coveting is an inordinate or culpable desire to possess, often that which belongs to another. So the term inordinate speaks to desiring a good thing in a wrong manner. So we could desire a good thing like a husband, but we might find that our hearts are bitter and angry and upset when God doesn't provide. So those are some signs that it's turned from a good desire to a covetous desire. The depth of the longing becomes too deep. The term culpable speaks to desiring a wrong thing that's clearly prohibited in Scripture. So it's one thing if I desire to have a husband, but if I desire someone else's husband, that's a culpable desire. It's always wrong to do that. So culpable desires, when we, when we desire something that God has clearly prohibited from us. So the sin of coveting is actually an umbrella sin. And what I mean by that is there are different words that are used to describe different types of coveting. So there are three other words that are used to describe coveting. One is envy, and that is when we set our affections on what belongs to another. Normally, it's our closest neighbors, someone who's in a season just like ours, and we look over the fence in their lives. So there's envy as a type of coveting. Lust describes coveting that is usually sexual in nature. And then greed describes coveting that is primarily focused on money and possessions. So coveting is this umbrella, and these are different types of coveting because it's unfortunately such a problem for most of us. Um, I want to give us five categories that we often covet. I think part of the problem when we talk about the sin, and maybe why we don't talk about it enough, is that we think it's just about money and possessions. So you might be someone who's not ever bothered when you walk into someone's new home, you might be like, that's great. I don't really want that stuff anyway. But I think it's actually a much broader sin than what we usually say. It's not just money and possessions, although that's one type. Um, but we can also, we can covet romantic relationships, meaning a spouse, someone to share our lives with. We can covet relationships with family and friends. We can um, look over the fence and say, I wish I had better friendships. I wish I had more loving friendships. We can covet seasons and circumstances, and we can also covet giftedness and abilities. And we'll jump into what those are and look like a little bit more later. 
Um, but I just want you to see it's a much broader problem than what we normally limit it to. Um, I want to give you three different characteristics of coveting so that we can help spot what it looks like. Um, so we just looked at the definition. Here are some characteristics. Coveting is a sin pattern, not a circumstance. Often we think, if I could just get the thing I would desire, then I'd be content. There's probably something right now that you can think of in your mind. If I had X, then I would be content. And I want you to think back to what that was when you were 15. You probably had something back then that you thought it could have been that boy who was sitting in your class that you thought, if he could just like me, I would be content. But now you really don't care that he didn't like you. You know, there's the reality that when we get something, it doesn't necessarily make us content. Most of us can think through our lives. At every season of our lives, there was something we were longing for. And even when we finally got it, you know, you finally get the house that you've been longing for. And then you realize the plumbing's bad. You know, there's always something that we're longing for and things don't go as we planned. An example of this in the Bible is the story of Rachel. And she is in this horrible love triangle with her sister and her husband. And her sister Lee keeps, Leah keeps giving birth to child after child after child. And she is watching this, and she cannot bear children. And finally, she gets pregnant. She gets the thing she's been longing for. She has this baby, and you would think she names him. God has provided, he has given me great joy or something like that. She actually names him Joseph. And what Joseph means is may he add. May he add. She's looking at her sister, who's just had her sixth son. And so she's sitting there, and although she's been giving this blessing, the son that she so wanted, she's asking God, will you add to me more? There's always just a little bit more that we're longing for. Attainment does not give us contentment. Second characteristic of coveting. It is marked by comparison and entitlement. Coveting is not just simply looking over the fence into someone else's life and saying, that's a lovely coat or a lovely house or a lovely garden. It's looking over there and saying, God is being better to her because he has blessed her in that way than he is being to me. So it is full of comparison and entitled. Um, it really can be summed up by the phrase, Life is not fair. If you spend a lot of time thinking it's not fair, it's a sign somewhere in your heart that coveting has probably taken root. The 10th commandment warns against this type of comparison. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I love the Westminster Confession. It goes through all of the Ten Commandments, and it says, what are the sins forbidden in this commandment, and what are the duties required? 
When it, said, when it talks about this, the 10th commandment, it says, what are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? Listen to what it says. It's very insightful. The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. So I want you to listen to that. If you're feeling discontent in your own estate, it's a sign that coveting has taken root in some way. But I think what this also shows in such a profound way is how it breaks our relationship with our neighbor. Because did you hear that part? Envying and grieving the good of our neighbor. You know, when you can't hear the good of someone else, it's a sad thing. We can't love them well. If we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we hear a good thing has happened to them, and our first reaction is to grieve the good in their lives, it shows how this sin breaks relationship with others. We will never love someone well when we're coveting what they have. We'll always be seeing them through the lens of our, ourselves. And that's exactly the opposite way that we want to view others. So the third characteristic, coveting is a begetting type of sin and it is dangerous. The problem with coveting is that it never stays in our hearts. It always gives birth to other sins. And so it's the root of a lot of the other sins. Um, Adultery begins first with the covetous desire of lust. Stealing begins with envy of that which belongs to another. In fact, Thomas Watson, a Puritan author, says that every sin has its root in coveting. So, you know, if we thought that perhaps we could keep the other nine commandments flawlessly, this one hits at the root. You know, if we, if we looked at this, I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen anything from anyone. I've never committed adultery. This one gets to our hearts. And what it shows is what God was after all along. Our outward obedience is to be a sign of what's happening inwardly. And what coveting shows us is what is really going on inwardly, not just what's happening outside of us. And so God has always been after our hearts. And this is a dangerous sin. James tells us why. James 1, 14 through 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Coveting in some way will bring forth death in our lives. Sin always does that. God does not warn us with his law to keep us in chains. He warns us with his law to give us freedom. And he knows if we don't fight these desires that are at war within our soul, it's actually going to lead to places of death. Not necessarily physical death, but to places where our soul, in a sense, is corroded by these bad desires. And so that's why we want to fight and fight well against these desires that are at war within our soul. So this leads us to the second question, the second point of this talk. How do we know if we're coveting? How do I distinguish between a good longing and a covetous desire? 
First of all, let me say I think that's hard to do sometimes um, because having desires is not wrong. I like to describe it a little bit like looking in the fridge at two jugs of milk and you might look at them both and they might both look fine and then you take one out and you start to smell it and as you pour it and you see chunks start to come, you know it is sour. Um, And the same is true with our desires. Two women can be longing for the exact same thing. And one desire can be really sour, and one desire can be really healthy. Um, And I think some of the ways you see that are just through how people are accepting. Are they bitter and angry, or are they bearing good fruit? But I want to give us four ways that we can start to think through how to know the difference between a good longing and a covetous desire. So the first, the object of our desire is wrong. So if we are setting our hearts on something that is clearly prohibited in Scripture, then we can know that our desire is wrong. So our first mother, Eve, clearly did this. She was in the garden. Everything was good. And she set her eyes on the one thing that she was prohibited. So we know that the desire itself was wrong because it went against God's will for her life. The second one, so that if the object of our desire is wrong, if we're setting our hearts on something that is wrong, we know we're coveting. The second one, the means of obtaining our desire is wrong. When we want something that we are willing to go about any means to get it, we know that we are coveting. Um, a good example of this in scripture is found by looking at Sarah in Genesis 16. Um, God had promised that Abraham would have children, that they would have children together. Um, So Sarah had a good and right desire for children. In fact, she could even say, children have been promised to me. Um, But we know that she went about a wrong means. What did she do? She took matters into her own hands when she saw that God wasn't fulfilling that promise in her timetable. And she gave her husband Hagar. And she said, I'll get a child through this way. We know how terribly that went. It did not bring her satisfaction. But she was coveting a child because she was willing to go to wrong means rather than to trust God with what he was doing. So when when we're willing to lie or cheat or steal to get what we want, even if it's a good thing, her desire was good and right, but her, the means she was willing to use were incorrect. And then thirdly, if the motivation for our desire is incorrect, often we are coveting. Sometimes we want what other people are having just because they have it. You may have walked into someone's living room and you see something there and you never knew you needed it until you see it in their house. And then all of a sudden you say, huh. My life would be so much more fulfilled if I had that. And so often when we're sparked by comparison and then our desire gets sparked just because someone else had it, we can know that that's probably a sign something's going on in our hearts with this. The Israelites did this. If you remember, um, they looked around all the other nations and they said, we want a king And they did want a king to rule them and to make them love the Lord more. They wanted a king because all the other nations had a king. 
And so Samuel comes to them and he says, this king is going to rob you. It's going to rob you of life. And they still said, we want a king because the other nations have one. And so when our motivation is sparked by comparison, we need to check our desire and see if, if that's what's going on in our hearts. Lastly, and I think this is the one that shows me the most when I have this heart problem, and that's our attitude while we are waiting is wrong. Um, if we find that while we're waiting for something, we are lacking joy and peace and kindness and love, we can probably know that there's a covetous desire at the root. Um, a few years ago, my friends and I were at a park with all of our kids. And we loved this park. We would take them there because this park had a fence that surrounded it. And the older kids came to us and they said, hey, can we go play? There was a field outside the fence. And they said, can we go play in the field outside the fence? Well, the other mothers, we talked about it. And to be quite honest, it was easier for us for everyone to be inside the fence because then the younger children would want to go outside of the fence too. And there was a big, busy road. So we told everyone, you have to stay within the fence. And so we sat back down and continued chatting as the kids were playing, we thought. And a few minutes later, we looked up and every one of those older children were standing at the fence and they were just looking at the field. And, you know, behind them was this whole playground full of sandboxes and swings and slides. And they missed out on everything that was good because they were looking at the one thing they were missing. And so this is what coveting does. It robs us of life. We're so fixated on the one thing that is lacking that we miss the good that is ours. Because every life is full of both hardship and blessing. And so what we choose to set our gaze on matters. And what our attitude is while we wait. Those kids could have said, hey, let's just go have fun over here. But they chose to look at the one thing that was missing. Um, and so this is, these are some signs that can help us discern. Is this a covetous desire or a longing? And let me say, in that day-to-day, sometimes we're going to hold our desires well. Sometimes they're going to turn into coveting. It's a constant battle of these passions that are at war within our soul. That's what James tells us. So that's some signs of how we can know if we're coveting. Thirdly, um, what is at the heart of our coveting? And I think this is really important. We do not have a circumstantial problem. We have a heart problem and we have a belief problem. And that's what I want us to look at to end this talk. Um, Thomas Watson says this, discontentment is nothing but the echo of unbelief. Remember, distrust is worse than distress. So discontentment is this echo It's an echo of unbelief. And I think there are three different things that we're not believing when we covet. The first is we have an unbelief in God's character and who he is. Secondly, we have an unbelief in our home. And thirdly, we have an unbelief in what our purpose is. Um, So when we talk about God's character, 
Um, we know that the scriptures put forth that God is sovereign. He is reigning over all things. And we're also told that he is reigning over all things well. That he is good. That he is infinite. That he rules. But he rules not as a terrible leader. Not as some you know, bad ruler. But as a good ruler. That he's a good king. The example I like to use is if... I looked at this wall, and I said, this is all the knowledge in all the earth, if, if, we could, if we could narrow it down. And I said, this whole back wall here is everything God knows about everything. Now, we know it's actually completely and utterly infinite. And if I were to compare what I know about the world, I would be greatly overestimating what I know if I went up and put a small, tiny dot on that board. Because my knowledge, my understanding of how the world works is so limited and so finite. And I stand before a holy God who knows everything and is good in all his ways. And when I am coveting, I am looking at him, and I, the dot, am saying to the king of all the universe, you aren't ruling very well. It's like a toddler who stares at her parents and saying, you don't know what you're doing. The toddler has no idea that running in the street with cars wouldn't be a good idea. She's just mad her parents won't let her do it. And so often we, in our finite, limited ways, want to look at God and tell him exactly how he should be ruling the universe. So coveting is always a sign of unbelief about who God is because we're either saying you're not very good or maybe you're really not in charge. We're saying one or or two things about his character. The second problem, um, coveting reveals what we really think about this earth. This earth, we are told, is not our home. We're told that as Christians, we're citizens of another country, that we have a home that is waiting for us. Jesus said when he left, I go to prepare a place for you. But the reality is most of us treat this world like it's our home. One of the benefits of living in a foreign country that I found was I knew I wasn't a citizen. I knew I was different every time when we first moved overseas. You know, I was that person who was very slow in the grocery store line trying to count out my money because the currency was different. Um, Thankfully, I did not harm anyone when I drove right through the zebra stripes because I didn't know you were supposed to stop at them. Um, Different things that I did that were completely wrong were because I was a stranger, in in the country. And I knew I was a stranger, so I knew that it was okay to feel uncomfortable at times. I didn't think it was my home. You know, when we lived here, I didn't buy all these furniture, you know, and a house and all these things. I lived very lightly when we were here. I think, you know, I, I can't really remember what I bought at all. We moved here with four suitcases because we knew our time was going to be limited. You live differently when you know you're not really home. And the reality is most of us 
are trying to make this imperfect world our perfect home. And so we are set up for failure. The great paradox is that by trying to make this world our home, it robs us of our ability to enjoy it. You see, I could enjoy my imperfect, very, very tiny little flat in Scotland because I knew it wasn't my ending place. I knew it wasn't my home. It was just part of the journey. And you don't sit in an airport and say, you know what, I'm going to make this my home. You know it's a place of transition. And so as when we covet, though, we're, tr- we're saying, I need everything now. And we forget everything will be ours in heaven. There will be no desires there, I, I, at least I think so, except maybe to praise the name of the Lord with every bit of our being. I think that every desire will be good there. Maybe that's a better way to say it. We will be fully satisfied and we will be home. But that is something that is coming. And it's when we believe that this is our true home, our desires are going to get inordinate and culpable, like we talked about earlier in our definition. And then the last thing is unbelief about our purpose. I think often in the Christian life, we come to believe that God's greatest purpose for us is to make us happy. And I want to say he does care about our joy, but he cares about our joy coming through holiness, not through happiness. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says it a beautiful way. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God's great design for you is not to make your life look like your neighbor's. His great goal for you is to make you look more and more like Jesus. Romans 8.28 talks about how God works everything for our good, but then he clarifies in Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. His best good for you is not to let your life look like your neighbor's, His best good for you is to shape and mold you to look more like Christ. And the reality is he doesn't use the same tools on each of us. I don't know if you've ever seen something that's hard for someone else and you kind of think to yourself, that's not hard. That wouldn't be hard for me. That's probably precisely why the Lord's not taking you through it. He's going to chip off what needs to be chipped off you And he's going to use just the right tools to do it. So each of us are made of different clay. 
Each of us have different resources available to us. Each of us have different personalities. Each of us have different abilities. And the Lord knows just what tools each of us need to be more like Jesus. So it makes complete sense that our lives don't look like one another. Just to give you an image to keep in your head, if you could picture a potter who has two pieces that are in his cupboard that he makes. One is a teapot and one is a plate. And he crafted them both. But they're having this strange conversation in the cupboard. The plate looks at the teacup and the plate says, I wish I was a teacup. The teacup only gets brought out on special occasions. She's beautiful. She has got nice curves. She's more fragile than I am. She's nice. Her, her china is very thin. She didn't have to go through as hot of a kiln as I did. She gets to hold all these lovely liquids, and everyone always seems happy when they're holding her. I wish I had the life of a teacup. The teacup, in turn, looks at the plate and says, the plate is so much more useful than I am. The plate gets brought out at every meal and holds all these wonderful different types of food all day long. The plate's much sturdier than I am. The plate, you know, the, the potter must love the plate more because the plate gets used all the time. I wish that I was a plate. And this is what coveting often does. We look at others and we think they're more important to God or they're more useful to God. When the reality is the creator needs them both. The potter needs both the teacup and the plate. You wouldn't want a cupboard filled with just plates or just teacups. You need both. And we are a body. And God needs every woman in this room. For his purpose and his kingdom. Every life that he has saved through the blood of Christ matters immensely. And he is doing everything in your life for your best good to look like Christ. And it's when we get off this purpose and we think that our life is just about our personal happiness that we will find coveting starting to take root in our lives. The last thing I want us to think about as we go to a break is one of the biggest problems of our coveting that I I can see and I see in my own heart is that it shows my deep ingratitude for the cross. Um, We know that it was part of God's set purpose and plan to send his son to redeem a people who had walked in darkness and in sin. And he sent his son to die on the cross and die a horrible death, to live a perfect life and then die a horrible death for our sakes. And we hear in Paul's statement, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him Graciously give us all things. Can you imagine, in light of the cross, what our coveting must look like to the Lord? We say to him, essentially, I know you sent your son. I know you came to rescue and redeem me. 
I know he died a terrible death on my behalf, but I really still wish my apartment looked like my neighbor's. Or I wish I had her coat. Or I wish I had her bank account. We're essentially saying Christ is not enough. We look at what he has done on the cross for us and we say, I need that and something else. And whenever we do that, in a sense, we are maximizing the something else and we are minimizing the cross. It's like if I gave you a million pounds and then I said, and I gave someone else a million pounds and 20 pence. And then you said back to me, well, you gave her 20 pence extra. Everything in our lives here on this earth is that little bit of extra in comparison to what Christ has already given us on the cross. That is the one thing we will have eternity with God. All eternity has been given to us, and yet we take the things of this earth and we raise them up and we say, no, I need those or I cannot be happy. And so we always have to keep the cross in view as we deal with our longings and desires, knowing that the greatest desire has been already fulfilled in Christ. One Puritan author said it this way, Though I cannot know what your afflictions are, yet I know what your mercies are. And I know they are so great that I am sure there can be no affliction in this world as great as the mercies you have. If it were only this mercy, that you have this day of grace and salvation continued to you, it is a greater mercy than any affliction. Set any affliction by this mercy and see which would weigh the heaviest. This is certainly greater than any affliction, that you have this day grace and salvation, that you are not now in hell. This is a greater mercy. If the cry of the covetous is life is not fair... The cry of the contented Christian is also, life is not fair, but in my favor. What do I mean by that? Life is not fair in my favor. I deserve death. I deserve eternal punishment. Life is not fair that Christ took it on my behalf. So while the discontented soul says life is not fair, the contented soul says life is not fair in my favor. I deserved all of these bad things, and I have been given in Christ all of these riches. And so that's what we're going to keep looking at over the next two talks. We're going to go into what is the pattern that coveting takes in Scripture. We're going to look at that. And then we're going to see how Christ is the great pattern breaker. We're going to continue to go into the depth of this. But let me close this in prayer from this talk. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that he came to rescue and redeem us, a people who had wandered far from you, and he came to save us in spite of desires that are wrong, in spite of lives that are wrong, that he came to put his spirit within us and allow us to live life and to live life to the full. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take hold of that which is truly life and to let go of that which is not life. Lord, turn our eyes away from worthless things 
and give us life in your name. Lord, let us find fullness of joy in your presence. We love you and we ask that you would continue to be with us as we spend our time looking in the sin, but more so looking to Christ and how he has rescued us from these sins and so many others. Lord, be with us, convict us, and comfort us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.